My name is Devan Mangumurthy. I'm an undergraduate at Yale College with the South Asian Studies Council, and I'm here today with two of the most distinguished living historians of South Asia. Ramachandra Guha is Distinguished University Professor at Korea University. His many books include A Corner of a Foreign Field, an award-winning social history of cricket, India After Gandhi, and a two-volume biography of Mahatma Gandhi. His most recent book is Rebels Against the Raj. His books and essays have been translated into more than 20 languages. And, relevant to this conversation, he's the recipient of an honorary doctorate in the humanities from Yale University. Sunil Amrit is the Renu and Anand Dhawan Professor of History and current chair of the South Asian Studies Council. He's the author of Unruly Waters, a groundbreaking study of the impact of waters on Asia's history, and Crossing the Bay of Bengal, among other books. So for the past week and a half at Yale, we've had the pleasure of having Ram give a number of talks on cults of personality, Western participants in India's freedom struggle, and his work as a sports historian. Later today, he'll be joining another panel on public intellectuals. So we've kept him very busy. But Ram's association with Yale long predates me or Sunil. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, thanks, David, and thanks, thanks, Sunil. So um, my association with Yale began in January 1986 when I came to join my wife, who was a master's student in graphic design. And uh, she had come the previous fall, and I was very lucky to be able to follow her and get a visiting lectureship at the Forestry School, because that's uh, now renamed the School of Environment. And they were incredibly happy, productive, uh, enriching days for us. We worked very hard. We made many friends. We learned an enormous amount and uh, went back to India with all that knowledge and understanding and lived there ever after. So Yale was actually formative personally and intellectually to me. Tell us more, Ram, about the intellectual influence that that period of your, of your, of your life had on, on your future work. So I'll tell a little bit about what I'd done in India before I came here. So I'd done a master's in economics and a PhD in sociology, moving towards history. And I had some very good teachers, particularly in my PhD. Uh, uh, and of course, I'd done a great deal of original research, as you would do for a doctoral dissertation, as you know. So I was grounded. I knew what my ideas were. So, and then I came here, and in some ways I was fortunate because Yale at that state had no South Asia at all. So I had been schooled in Indian history, sociology, politics, and economics to some extent. And I was meeting scholars of Malaysia, Indonesia, America, China, uh, Canada, and learning and interacting with them. So in that sense, I think if I'd come to do a PhD in South Asian studies in America, I'd have had a much narrower intellectual trajectory because I'd been shaped by internal debates within these post-colonial diasporic academy, which are often quite different and unrelated to debates within India. So I knew something about my large and diverse and complicated country, but here allowed me to become much more comparative in focus. And also at that stage, uh, my um, environmental history was booming in this country. And it was in its, in that field per se was in its infancy in, uh, uh, in India. So at Yale itself, there was a, a very brilliant young environmental historian called William Cronin, who had written a book on New England. There was a senior environmental hist historian called Conrad Totman, who wrote on Japan. Uh, there was an environmental historian of Africa, who's actually in the anthropology department, who became a close friend, Timothy Weiskel, who later joined the Harvard uh, Divinity School. So I was, I was learning about the techniques and methodology of environmental history, and in context other than South Asia. 
And of course, Jim Scott, uh, the great uh, polymathic scholar of uh, everything under the sun, more or less, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, had just published Weapons of the Week. He became a friend and I would chat to him. So in that sense, I went back really having grown. But uh, to uh, reiterate what I said, I'm glad I didn't come here as a PhD student because I kind of knew what I wanted to do and how I could, you know, further my intellectual development. And one thing that has changed since then and something you referred to in a speech was that there is now South Asia at Yale. There is a study of South Asia, there's a discipline. What do you think are the trade-offs of that emergence of a discipline? And how do you think the study of South Asia has changed over the so past I few think, years? Uh, well, personally for me, uh, it was good that there was no South Asia at Yale. But for Yale per se, it's fantastic. And what you've done since then, what the university has done, has done since then, is make outstanding hires in uh, anthropology, economics, history, political science, religion, language studies. And uh, I think, uh, uh, arguably, this is the most. This is the South Asia depart, uh, program with the most potential. I mean, of course, they are old and storied programs in places like Chicago and Berkeley and so on. But I think here is something is creating something new and fresh. Uh, and I think it's important that you have a lot of mid-career scholars because actually they do sometimes the best work. You know, they experienced enough, but they're not set in their ways. They're not, you know. Uh, uh, wedded to a particular methodology, or, uh, uh, or and of course you have lots of students. And now, and since I was here in 1986, there's a much larger Indian or South Asian diaspora here. So people like you, you know, coming to study in universities. I guess in when I was here in 1986, there must have been 10 students from South Asia. Uh, we, you know, there must be 200 now, right, or something like that. So it's a, you know, I, 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 and these two weeks have been absolutely enthralling for me because I've been meeting faculty, I've been meeting undergraduates, I've been meeting master's students, people professional school, people doing their dissertations, graduate students, and I've been discussing their work with them. So it is really a very uh, thriving community, and it's, it's been wonderful to be here. Well, I mean, it, the amount of energy you've brought to the campus this past couple of weeks, Ram, I think has been extraordinary and the level of engagement and excitement that it's caused uh, right from undergraduates right up to, to all of our colleagues has been um, immense. So we're very, we're very grateful. Um, Thank you. And on that topic of advising master's students and talking to them about their work, after Yale, we've talked about this a little, you went back to India, you were with the university for some time, but then you also left the university. And I'm curious if you can talk about how you've made being an independent scholar and historian work over the past several decades. So uh, I went back from Yale in 1987. I taught at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. Then I moved to Delhi for six years, where I had two series of academic jobs. And then in 1995, when I was my late 30s, my wife, who studied at Yale, Sujata, whom I mentioned, had established a design practice. And we went back to Bangalore, where she... Uh, which is the hometown for both of us, and we had small children, and we wanted to raise them with family. And Bangalore is a city of scientists and IT professionals. It has virtually no humanities and social science intellectual tradition. Uh, at least didn't then. Now there's a good law school where perhaps I could have joined if had it been active then. So I just decided to go out on my own. I'd already write, started writing for the press. Uh, so I wrote a fortnightly column, which kind of, or a weekly column, it became a weekly column, which paid the equivalent of a professor's salary. And the rest of the time I worked on my books. And I think um, it was um, somewhat unorthodox, the choice I made. It wasn't easy even then. And had I not had a family home and, uh, you know, a partner who was supportive in all, all respects, I would not have been able to do it. Also, the Indian media then, Devin, uh, was much more robust and serious. 
So the op-ed pages weren't, you know, it wasn't dominated by politics and uh, uh, film and cricket and gossip and celebrity gossip that has become now. So the India media was amenable to a column that talked about serious issues, you know, caste, gender, religion, environment, international relations, Cold War geopolitics, you know. So I could write about all these in an accessible way for a wider audience. And, uh, and this is well before the age of social media, which is, you know, uh, in many ways dumbs down the narrative and uh, provides it in bite sizes, you know. You can't even read a thousand-page article, let alone a thousand-page book. You know, young people find it tough. So in a sense, I was lucky in becoming a, uh, you could, whatever you want to call it, a public intellectual at the time I could. But I always was careful to, uh, to keep enough time for my research. So I would travel out of Bangalore for two or three months of the year to the archives in different parts of India and in England and do my research and come back. Uh, to be sure, I miss students, you know, and particularly graduate students. And uh, I kind of compensated for that by mentoring young writers informally uh, and, and learning from them all the time. So it was a trade-off because students provide you a great deal of energy and uh, push, you know, push back to your ideas. But Bangalore, unfortunately, at that time, had absolutely no social science or humanities strategy. It's slightly better now. I mean, I think from that vantage point, the, the the mentorship that you have provided to younger scholars more recently through your work with the New India Foundation has been has been extraordinary. So I think that that. Um, that mentoring role is one that you've been able to fulfill despite not being formally in, in, in a university context, I'm sure. And in fact, you've probably brought much to that mentorship, which the perhaps narrower bounds of, of university scholarship would not have allowed you to do. I think. So I think, uh, thanks for saying that, uh, Sunil. I think one thing Yale taught me uh, was, and which I took back, uh, was that I'm not bound by narrow, narrow disciplinary. Uh, frameworks. So I have degrees in economics and sociology, but I'm essentially a historian. And I'm interested in politics and culture. I'm clear about what I don't know. So I know no economics. So I've never remotely... But in the broad field of humanistic social science studies, uh, you know, I have wide interests. So uh, in that sense, you know, these young writers and so the New India Foundation, which you mentioned, uh, many of its grantees are actually journalists and writers. And not about half are academics and half are just first-class non-fiction writers writing well-researched books and elegantly written books. So because I was a kind of, a, uh, you could call me an eclectic, not really a, a professional who'd specialized in a particular field. Uh, you know, Even within history, I've done different kinds of things. And I was already interested in contemporary issues. So it's been nice working with a diversity of young writers. And of course, again, it's quest partly it's a question of luck. I said that in the 1990s, I was able to make a living as a columnist and author of books without having a university position. That would not be possible now. And in the 2000s, and when I started working with younger scholars through the India Foundation, was just the time the emphasis in Indian publishing was moving from fiction to nonfiction. So there'd been a, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there'd been a wave of brilliant Indian novelists. So there'd been Vikram Seth, Amitav Ghosh, Arundhati Roy, Vikram Chandra, Rohintan Mistri, and and that kind of vein was kind of uh, ebbing out. And there was space for really lots of creative and original work in nonfiction by younger writers. And the New India Foundation was, again, fortunate in that it caught this wave and was able to take it forward. And I'm curious, so speaking of those varied interests and the sort of eclecticism that you've brought to your work, we'll turn to more of that with sports specifically later. But I'm curious if you felt constrained by the boundaries of history or by how the discipline has changed 
um, over the past 30 years and grown more narrow or more specialized? So I think working outside the academy helped me, you know, because I, it was not a question of getting tenure or uh, publishing in peer-reviewed journals, you know. And uh, so in that sense, uh, and uh, uh, that was that was enabling, not being in the academy enabled me to do different kinds of things. And though within the academy, you could, I mean, Jim Scott, whom I mentioned earlier, is a great example, who actually is training is in political science, and he's probably best, better known as an anthropologist than, a, uh, than anything else. Uh, so um, I think the importance, I'm still a historian, in that all my work is grounded in primary research in the archives. So it's not very theoretical, it's not abstract. There's a limited amount of fieldwork, which is what anthropologists do. The bulk of my uh, research is in unpublished documents in different kinds of archives, which is what which is the preserve of the historians. And it's, so, in that sense, my methodology is is uh, I think that of a historian of the modern world, uh, though I apply it in different contexts, you know, which are not necessarily discipline specific. I think the payoff from that has been sort of immense. We were talking uh, recently about how India After Gandhi, for example, is a kind of book that can be taught into undergraduate classes because it's so accessible. Absolutely. I mean, I found, in fact, India After Gandhi, I think, perhaps only with hindsight, one can see how much space it opened up for the writing of, of for a new generation of scholars who are now writing post-independence Indian history, which when the book came out in 2007, there's very little of it by historians, very, very little of it um, written by historians. And now I think that's really shifted. Um, but I think the breadth of India after Gandhi, but also the um, the way in which a lot of figures, characters really come to life, I think is, is uh, has allowed it to, to really stand the test of time as a text to bring students to the study of South Asia, to a study of India, including those who don't have any background in doing that. I've just prepared, incidentally, a third revised edition of India After Gandhi, which will be out next January. So I did a, the book came out originally in 2007. I did an update 10 years later. And this time I've done an update six years later. And I I suspect that given that I'm in my mid-60s, this would be the last, last summer. summer when I, I don't know whether I can do a fourth edition. So things are changing, and obviously, uh, I mean, it was, but India After Gandhi was a voyage of discovery for me too. And I think that's, I may have conveyed some of that because all our training had been in colonial history and the great epic battle between imperialism and the freedom struggle uh, and its economic and political and cultural ramifications. That history ended in 1947. And uh, uh, I was learning s about the 50s and the 60s as I was researching the book. You know, there was no secondary literature for me to go by. So I think that uh, uh, the, uh, the you know, sense of discovery that... Uh, I experienced maybe some of that I was able to communicate, you know, in, in the writing. It's all new to me, all fresh and new to me. Yeah. And sort of bringing us along, bringing us along with you on that journey, you reached a number, you reached a tremendous number of people through your columns, through your work. Are you thinking about that as you write now? Does that affect how you write and what you're writing? Or is it a secondary concern, the size of your audience? Is it? Is, it, uh, is the size of your audience affecting how you write and what you choose well, to write uh, about? I think it's important to recognize that uh, columns are of the moment. They don't really last. You know, books last. Uh, obviously, you don't want to say utterly stupid things uh, in your columns, but occasionally you might, wittingly or unwittingly. And I think I have. I mean, I think there's some columns. I mean, I've written probably 1,500 
maybe even 2000 columns in the course of my career and there must be at least 10 or 15 i wish had never been published <laughs> because they 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 hostages to history they are there in somewhere in cyberspace to people to pick out and say look you were wrong about this and you were wrong about that all about that so but i think you reach many more people and uh, i think history is historians can write columns because history is a branch of social science but also a branch of literature you know style and elegance and ease of communication has been a hallmark of great historians for the last you know from the greeks more more or less right so in that sense it's i think more historians should write columns you know i think uh, uh, they don't have to write as regularly as i have done they could write once a month or four times a year for a newspaper you know depending on uh, because they can't communicate their their research in ways in which uh, the ordinary person or the aam aadmi as we call call him in india uh, can comprehend and do you ever feel at risk of losing perspective on sort of the broader historical issues you write about as a result of your columns which are very much columns of the moment yes yes i mean you know you know what you're doing and i think uh, i've actually just written a call a column uh, which I haven't published it. It'll come in a few weeks. But I've distinguished between three kinds of interventions that a scholar like me uh, makes. One is a book. One is a which could be five hundred pages. One is a twelve hundred word column, and the other is a two hundred and eighty character tweet. Because that's the third thing that has come in into our repertoire. And in some ways, that's the most hazardous. It's the most appealing, and the most uh, sexy because you can reach, you know. millions of people right uh, in theory everyone but it's the most appealing but the most you know treacherous uh, because of uh, uh, brevity is not something uh, you know you could uh, it doesn't come easily to older people i think people like you even young people uh, you know can uh, are used to clever one liners and epigrams and so on so uh, so i've written something on you know the, the hazards of twitter the appeal of twitter because you're reaching so many people and the problems with twitter, twitter as well yeah I hope I'm as witty as I'm being advertised here. Um but that raises a really interesting question, which is that the dynamics of writing and history and of language in India and the rest of the world have been changing, and one way of seeing that is in liberal education. There's been a move towards liberal education in India over the past 10 years that almost moves in reverse to the country's increasingly illiberal direction, which you've written about and you've commented on. and i'm curious what you think is the attraction of that sort of liberal education and of history as a discipline um in an india and in a world that is trending towards liberalism so uh, you know i think what you really mean by liberal though uh, they're not quite the same sort yeah, of the, 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 the colleges uh, it's called liberal arts programs right. right i think what you mean really is interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary education i mean the, the american model though it's called liberal arts i think is somewhat misleading I think what what one means is that as an undergraduate, one is exposed to many different forms of uh, knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge. So you do some mathematics, some science, some art, some literature, some social science, some visual studies, some architecture, and then you will decide to do a major or specialize in one of them in your junior or senior years. Uh, whereas the Indian model, which is you join at seventeen, you lose uh, leave school. and you do medicine or engineering or economics or chemistry and english and in those four or five years of college you study nothing else so i think this kind of holistic model of education uh, uh is now slowly emerging in india and i think that's fantastic so we now have maybe a dozen universities where you don't have to choose you don't have to specialize and i think that broadens your mind i think it equ- equ- equips you much better uh 
not just in a scholarly way, but to meet the challenges of the world once you become join it, uh, once you join the workforce. Uh, so I'm very glad that this is happening because you know, if you look at my life, at 16 I had to decide what to study, and I chose economics without ever having studied it because I didn't want to do science because I was a sportsman and I wanted to play. If you do science, you can't play cricket because there's you know practice in the afternoons. So I just blindly went into economics, and within a week I knew it's not for me, but I couldn't change. Whereas if I'd had what you have, economics. Philosophy and uh, politics, uh, at least that, and a little bit of uh, history thrown in uh, in my first year, and by my second year, I'd have known where I want to go. So I think this kind of holistic, transdisciplinary education that the American model is, I think, uh, very even in England where Sunil studied, they're adopting parts of it. So when when I if I had wanted to go to uh, England to study, except for the PPE. There was no interdisciplinary. I couldn't have done history and economics or history and politics, but now you can do that kind of stuff, right? So I think they're also recognizing this, and I think that's uh, that's very that's very valuable. I think the concern, and you know, we have a lot of these conversations on this campus too. I think the concern is that an interdisciplinary, holistic education is the preserve of of an elite, and perhaps an elite. That is already, in some ways, by socialization, predisposed towards that sort of liberal approach to social and political questions. And the question I think we all grapple with is: is first of all, whether that is the case, um, and second of all, how what we can do to sort of broaden that holistic approach to education, um, you know, far beyond very elite institutions. Um, it's a resource-intensive way to teach. Uh, it takes. Uh, a lot of institutional capacity to be able to teach that way. Um, and I think the question is, you know, what might such an approach to education look like if it were also, um, in that way, I think, in fact, the American public system is a better model perhaps for the world where, you know, you have the same holistic approach to education in the large public state schools um, as you would in a place like Yale. Um, whether that model can be um, learned from and adapted to different circumstances within large public universities, I think, is the next big question. And, and I think perhaps in some ways, uh, the broader future is more in, in, in whether and how that process happens. That's very fair. So I want to come back to one thing you just said. Um, and perhaps the most animated I've seen you over the past two weeks was on Tuesday when you're giving a talk about cricket. Um, you said you were a sportsman, which is why you didn't choose science, you chose economics. Do you ever contemplate what your life might have been like if cricket had panned out, if you had continued being a sportsman rather than a writer and an historian? I think, uh, I'm, I'm, in retrospect, obviously I was devastated when I was uh, in my early 20s and I recognized I could not, I was not good enough to become a professional uh, cricketer. But in retrospect, I was very lucky because I think uh, you know it would have taken to follow up on our discussion. It would have taken me down a narrow, specialized path, known known nothing of the world, the world outside. Uh, but uh, playing sport, I think, taught me things. Uh, so one, of course, hard work, discipline, uh, the hard yards, but also coping with success and failure. Team team sports are particularly educative. You know, unlike individual sports. So you know. Uh, you fail, but your teammates cause your century and your team wins, right? So I think these are things that you learn. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. As I said, I, I think uh, 
because very few people really reach international level. You know, I could have maybe been a, a, a played for my state and made some kind of modest living as a professional cricketer, but I'm, in some ways I'm glad I wasn't good enough. Yeah. And you've talked about three eras of cricket in Indian history, um, sort of the Bombay, Pentacular uh, era, the state level era, the Ranjit G Trophy era, and now the IPL. And one thing I'm very curious about is, could you talk a little bit about how the IPL has changed Indian cricket and your thoughts on that phenomenon? So I think, uh, obviously, the IPL is, is aimed at a rapidly transforming society where time is of the essence. You know, if you look at, even if you look at the history of how baseball came to this country, uh, cricket was quite popular in, uh, in New England right through the 19th century. But it took a whole day or three days and as uh, America industrialized and time became so important uh, to capitalism, you, uh, the, a window of two or three hours, which is what the baseball game provides you, is what became more attractive. And in a sense, that's what's happening. I mean, cricket is becoming more abbreviated in time. It's kept, kept uh, and uh, unlike 19th century America when baseball took out, now you have the television. So you can actually even start after daylight. You can have night cricket. Now you, of course, also have night baseball. So 7 to 10 is kind of peak viewing time because people come back from work. They want to unwind after a, a hard slog in their office or their factory. And in that sense, IP has struck that, uh, the Indian Premier League has struck that sweet, sweet spot. But uh, it's a different game from long-form test cricket, you know, different techniques, different kinds of art. And for a purist like me, it's really uh, not appealing enough. But it has caught on. Uh, it's got a fantastic audience. Uh, now, this year, in, in, interestingly, uh, the numbers began to drop for the first time. Since the tournament began in 2008, the viewership figures for 2022 were about, I mean, I can't rem remember, but something like 15 or 20% lower than the previous year. Mm -hmm. So maybe exhaustion has set in because, you know, it's kind of very formulaic. It's the same kind of thing that's happening. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see how, how, how it pans out here. Yeah. All I know is that my grandfather refuses to watch T20 and will only watch Test Cricket. Good for him. <laughs> Send him my salutations. <laughs> <laughs> but he and I are in a distinct, distinct and ever-shrinking minority. <laughs> um, so but cricket's not the only thing that's been changing in India. Politics, society as a whole have changed. You've been averse to making predictions about India's future, partially because it never quite goes the way one expects. But I'm curious if you feel comfortable looking at the future of India's institutions and political institutions specifically, um, saying whether you think India, which you've now described as a 30% democracy, remains secure as one, or if it'll be an ever-shrinking percentage of democracy. So again, I don't want to predict, but I would like to uh, maybe um, highlight a few fault lines or areas of concern that have, uh, are very clearly manifest in uh, contemporary India. So I'll just give four or five not necessarily in order of importance uh, because they're all important you know i'm not so first is the very precarious position of india's largest minority the muslims so unlike when india was uh, born in 1947 pakistan was constituted as a homeland for muslims but the founders of the indian republic particularly nehru uh, um, did not want india to go down that route and wanted citizens of all religious 
denominations to have uh, equal rights. And India has a very large Muslim population. Of course, it also has Christians and Sikhs and, and Parsis and Jains. So I think Indian Muslims are more, more vulnerable and more fragile than at any time in our history. Today, there was a report of an attack on a mosque in, in Gurgaon, just outside Delhi. You know, a um, rampaging right-wing Hindu mob just went into a mosque and stopped them from praying. So that is an issue. You know, can... Because it's a very large minority. It's a 200 million people. I mean, how can you... Uh, systematically harass, stigmatize, and persecute them. And that's what the narrative, uh, that's what the ruling party and his associates are allowing, even if they're not explicitly uh, encouraging it, they're allowing this kind of uh, street vigilantism and hooliganism to flourish or in different parts of North India. So that's one issue. The second issue is, of course, institutions which you mentioned. So to sustain a democratic ethos, a plural ethos, institutions such as the press, the judiciary, the civil service, the universities must be autonomous and independent. And in India, all these institutions are being politicized and controlled by the state. So that's the second area of worry. A third area of worry would be the growing divide between the north and the south, which is not much talked about. But the southern parts of India uh, send many fewer representatives to our, the parliament but they are much more advanced economically, socially. They're more progressive when it comes to gender. Uh, there are less, fewer attacks on minorities in South India. There's greater innovation, more scientific research. All the things that make for a happier, more prosperous society are there in South India. And North India is kind of, you know, mired in caste and religious politics and unemployment. So that, I think, is an area. One part of your country is going and the other. And that's the part of your country which has far less political power and electoral heft. That, I would say, is the third challenge. A fourth challenge uh, is, of course, uh, the environmental challenge, which young people talk about, uh, uh, but which uh, the political class resolutely ignores. And when I'm talking about the political, uh, the environmental challenge, Devan, I don't only mean climate change. Of course, climate change is a huge issue. You've seen what's happened in Pakistan with the floods, uh, ex extraordinarily unprecedented floods, and similar things could happen in uh, India too. But it's also to do with environmental problems unconnected with climate change. For example, uh, the toxic air, the fact that so many of the world's most polluted cities are in India, and particularly in North India. Uh, the pollution of rivers, you know, historically most Indian cities, you know, Patna, Calcutta, Banaras, Pune, Delhi, uh, were sited on rivers, and those rivers are unusable. The depletion of the groundwater aquifer because of excessive uh, uh, charge by, by farmers, right? Uh, the, the contamination of the soil. So, and all this, what these do to long, A, to health and livelihood in the short term and to our long-term economic prospects uh, is, you know, is, it's, it, these are all very serious questions. And so I'd say there are four or five challenges that the Republic is facing. And finally, something which is beyond our control is the complex, fragile, uh, international environment, you know, not just the, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but other things that are happening across the world. That Clearly, that's not within our control, right? The repercussions we feel in India. But these four challenges, to repeat, uh, uh, attacks on India's religious minorities, the degradation and corruption of India's institutions, the north-south divide, and the manifold and environmental crises we face. These would be some of the challenges that should worry every Indian. You know, regardless of which religion, party, ideology, you know, age, gender, whatever. You know, these are things that I think uh, are major, uh, major issues that need to be at least, they can't be resolved, they, but they at least need to be addressed seriously. And I wonder if you want to speak to any of those, especially the environmental piece, which you've worked on quite a bit. 
I I can't but agree that that is a looming, uh, truly colossal threat and challenge. And in proportion to the size of the threat, I think the attention paid to it um, is minuscule. I completely agree with Ram that we need to remind ourselves this is not just about climate change. Um, Climate change compounds a lot of these other questions. Uh, but many of them are distinct challenges, problems, crises in their own right and need to be thought of that way. Is there anything that gives either of you hope about the future of India or for addressing those challenges that you just highlighted, Dom? So, I, well, I think the environmental challenge is one which it's, it's a collective or active problem, as they say in uh, you know, the political economy. So that's the most, that doesn't really give me hope. Young people are, you know, obviously concerned. But uh, I think um, there is now a pushback against religious fundamentalism. So uh, I think there there are fears about uh, the, the you know how our institutions are functioning. But so there I think there may be some room for hope. But as Sunil said, in uh, proportion to the challenge, the environmental in proportion to the challenge, environmental concerns get virtually no attention at all. Even in the press, you know, forget the forget parliament or. Uh, you know, uh, political debates, so even in the press. Uh, so I think this, uh, there are some first-stage researchers whom Sunil and I know in different parts of India working away, but their results are never translated into policy and are never even discussed in the press. You know, so someone doing really good work on uh, the pollution of water around Bangalore and the threat that poses to Bangalore as a megalopolis, you know, in which 20 million people live. Uh, if someone does really first-rate work and also offers solutions, or you know, it's not as if the local Bangalore newspaper will, you know, write a long essay about it. In this country, you might you might have the New York Times writing five thousand words on you know chemical cont- contamination in some uh, you know some town in uh, in Michigan. What it's called Flint, Flint. Flint right? yeah. So you'd have a long story on Flint and what and the kind of environmental and social justice implications of pollution, right? At there, the press is completely you know blind to all of this. So this, I'd say that that that's really something we should be keep on going at. I mean, in terms of of sources of hope, I mean, I think it is. It is generational. I think every time I interact with young people, whether that is my own students here at Yale or or, or students that I meet every time I go to India, you know, the, the level of energy and inspiration and commitment and fear, honestly, is is huge. And I think if the hope comes from anywhere, it, for me, it is it is it is from that. And I want to ask a little bit about that. Both of you have been practitioners and historians for some time, what are you excited about in your fields? Who are the researchers, the writers, the thinkers, who you are particularly interested in, who you think are doing sort of exciting work for the discipline of history, for the study of South Asia? Um, for I think too many to mention. Okay. I, mean, I think I, I mean, Sunil and I, uh, differ in different, are different spheres, you know, me in India, Sunil in, in this country, me in a more kind of a freelance sense, only in a more professional sense, institutional setting. I mean, we are encountering brilliant young scholars all the time, you know, doing you know, doing social history, cultural history, environmental history, political history, looking at the contemporary period, looking at the ancient period, using pictorial methods, uh, using fieldwork, uh, learning different kinds of languages. So that's it. It's a very exciting time to be a historian, uh, to, uh, to learn from younger people, to interact with. So, that, so I think that's that's there. 
The question is how much of this. So there, I think that's on the intellectual front. Um, there's hope, as I said about nonfiction. I mean, this is the best time to be a nonfiction writer ever in India, and there's some really good books being written. You know, uh, and uh, offered by journalists. Uh, you know, so wonderful studies of changing city life, migration, uh, scholarly biographies of uh, remarkable Indians, not just uh, Tagore, Gandhi, Ambedkar, and Nehru, but sort of you know maverick socialists and uh, feminists and uh, artists and all kinds of so but how much of this efflorescence of knowledge creation and brilliant writing will translate into changing public consciousness <laughs> and saving india from all these hazards i can't say but i think i think i speak for sunil when i say that in our different spheres we are both uh, i think we are experiencing and interacting with a whole range of brilliant young writers and scholars so too many to name individually no doubt. Uh, and the only thing I'd say is that that concern about how a very flourishing and vibrant intellectual scene translates into broader political and social change is, is as much an issue here in the US as it is in India. Um, um, I, I should I, I, I would maybe maybe as a last point, I just want to share something that a mutual friend of Ram's and mine, um, the wonderful historian Prashant Kadambi, uh, wrote in an email to me today. We happened to be corresponding and I said, well, we have Ram here at Yale. And uh, Prashant said, um, Ram is just as passionate about history as he was 30 years ago. And that's rare. And I think that that's really come through um, throughout the two weeks that you've been with us, Ram. Thank you. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you so much, Ram, for being here over the past two weeks. Um, that's everything. Thank you, David.